surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing, help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity. Hello and welcome to Let's Talk About It. This is your host, Taylor, and it is Masturbation May. So pleasure for every single body. Uh, I hope that you are starting off your Masturbation May with a bang, a boom, a squirt, whatever it is. I hope that you are engaging in pleasure. And I'm very excited about today's conversation. Very excited to share it with you all. I'm going to be talking with Christopher Van Hall, who is an agnostic and non-binary minister. They are the author of Reborn Again, Crucifying Christendom and Resurrecting a Radical, the lead pastor of Greater Purpose Church, and the co-founding visionary behind the Greater Purpose Brewing Company in Santa Cruz, California, which is a brewery that donates 30 to 60% of its profits to charities like the Santa Cruz LGBT Diversity Center, Planned Parenthood. NAACP and other social justice organizations. I, as y'all know, have not talked about religion a lot in a lot of these episodes, but the reason it is important today to talk about is because we're going to unpack purity culture and we're going to talk about how religion plays a part in our relationship with our bodies because whether or not you, you know, are religious yourself or identify that way. Religion has had a huge impact in our culture and how we feel about our bodies. So I'm really pumped about this entire conversation. It is a little bit outside my comfort zone, but I'm going in with open ears and open heart and an open mind to learn a little bit. And I hope that y'all are along with me on that. So let's talk about it. All right. So welcome, Christopher, to the show. Thank you so much for being here in your mountain house. I'm so jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I was trying to think about this before you came on to record, and I think you're the first pastor, minister, person I've ever had on the podcast. I'm honored. (laughs) I'm honored. That's that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Yeah. That's that's a badge of honor for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, religion is such a perhaps controversial is the word I want to use topic. Um, mm-hmm. One that's definitely a little bit outside of my comfort zone, but that's also kind of the point that I really enjoy about having a podcast like this is, you know, having some of these uncomfortable conversations. Um, sure. But I'm wondering if you could start off just sharing a little bit of like how you got into doing the work that you do today. Um, you know, if you were kind of raised uh, very religious within the community, if you kind of got into it, if you could maybe share a little bit of that background. Yeah, I grew up uh, in the Bible Belt, which is the funniest phrase to me ever, because if if the South is the Bible Belt, America has its pants down, because it's just, <laughs> it's it's not a very mm-hmm. wholesome place at times. But I grew up in the Bible Belt, and I uh, came from the Baptist and Pentecostal traditions, and uh, slowly, after studying scripture 
through the course of my career became much more progressive and uh, mm. eventually found my way out to more of a blue state. So I live in Santa Cruz, California now mm-hmm. and have some work that I'm doing out here. Okay. Yeah. And you're an agnostic minister. I am. I, am. I mean, we got to get into that. I'm all about holding <laughs> opposites and challenging shit. Um, what does that mean to be an agnostic minister to you? So I am a Christian ethically but spiritually, I tell people I'm not sure because I'm not really credentialed enough to speak with any amount of certainty whether there is or is not something above this like tangible, tangible physical experience. But for me personally, personally, I've seen no uh, no scientific evidence of anything spiritual. But I do find powerful moral teachings in the scripture that I align with, specifically in the gospels and the social justice oriented message of the gospels, which is why I align as a Christian ethically, but spiritually, I would say I'm agnostic, almost atheistic at times. And when you say spiritually, you say that you don't see any scientific proof of, um, you know, this, this sense of spirituality. How, what about nature? So I think it depends on how you define spirit, right? Yeah. So when I said that for formally, it's more about how like we in Western society define spirituality, which is mm-hmm. this, we, we kind of have a, um, a, a dualistic approach to spirituality and life. Like you have your spiritual life and you have your physical life, which is not how ancients define their life. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just, if you were alive, you were spiritual because the same word for spirit in the Bible, in both the Koine Greek, which is the New Testament and the ancient Hebrew in the Old Testament, the same word for spirit in both texts is breath. So for them, life is spiritual. Life is amazing. Uh, There's awe and wonder in nature and in everything that surrounds you. So if we're talking about the ancient definition of spirituality, then yes, I'm very spiritual. But if we're talking about this Hellenistic ideal that kind of merged with spirituality, you know, centuries later because Mm -hmm. of Roman culture getting their hands on the Christian uh, tradition, then no, I would not be very spiritual. So I guess it depends on how you define spirituality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like thinking from my perspective, I'm like, yeah, well, how I think of spirituality, I'm like, there is scientific proof of that. Um, Mm -hmm. But in the maybe more traditional um, Anglo-Saxon white American of Christianity, that's not what spirituality is about. No, no, not at all. And I would say in that realm, I am not very spiritual. Mm -hmm. But if I look at the wonders in the universe and just the complexities of everything that's unknown and the vast void, which is space and and how Mm -hmm. the chance for life is so, you know, rare Mm -hmm. in the universe and throughout the cosmos, I would say that, yes, there's something to be inspired by. And there's definitely Mm -hmm. something spiritual from an ancient definition there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, so this month is Masturbation May, which really is like it. That's it gets a month. I know. So I know. Don't cover this stuff in seminary. I didn't know that at all. That's wild. That's yeah. wild. <laughs> it's Jeez. amazing. Um, a whole month to celebrate masturbation, which can be celebrated all year long. Um, yeah. But you know, I'm I'm interested to have this conversation around, and it's something that you've talked about. Um, 
about purity culture and the mm. impact that that can have with sexuality, with, um, you know, LGBTQ communities, um, within the religious community. Um, mm. can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um, I think the concept in our modern age of purity culture stems from this really high value in a biblical marriage that really never was. When people are taught about biblical marriage from pulpits, there's typically this very Americanized view of marriage being projected from the Mm -hmm. pulpits. But if I'm being honest, um, biblical marriage and biblical sexual ethics is something that I hope is never resurrected. Uh, This is an archaic practice. It is centuries and centuries old. Uh, It stems from a very misogynistic uh, way of life. Mm -hmm. And throughout the text, not only is it problematic, but it's not consistent. (laughs) If you start in the Old Testament, the story of the ancient Judaic people, which is fascinating and has so much rich wisdom, I believe, for us. Uh, But when it comes to marriage, I would say that any civilization at that time should not have their practices resurrected. And it started out in the, the Bible with folks that were polygamous. Mm -hmm. Um, and the value of virginity was only placed heavily on women because they were considered to be property. If you actually look in the text, nowhere in the Bible, because there are extremely misogynistic views portrayed in the Bible, does it ever say that men should abstain from sex? It's specifically women. And again, that's unjust. It should not be resurrected. Especially when we don't want popping you out. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, unfortunately... We haven't dealt with this centuries mm-hmm. and centuries later. It's like, oh, you know, Christianity and, and the scriptures in which it emerged from are extremely misogynistic. In 2,000 years, not a fucking thing's changed, yeah. and it drives me nuts. Uh, but what's interesting is it did change in the scriptures because it started out as polygamy. And then by the time we get to a text called Songs of Solomon, which is really just a dude sexual escapades with hundreds of women. Like it's 50 shades of Yahweh. It's not like, I don't even know why it made it in the Bible, to be honest. (laughs) Um, It's, it's wild. And by that point in history, we had like this patriarchal polyamory going on where men Mm -hmm. were allowed to have multiple partners and concubines. Women were not, they were still viewed as property at that time. Again, Mm -hmm. horrible ethics. And then when we get to the New Testament, something interesting happened. There's a shift from polygamy and polyamory to monogamy Mm -hmm. that takes place. And some of the best scholars have concluded that this actually does not have roots in Judaic history because they were all about polyamory and polygamy and having multiple partners specifically for men. But with monogamy, where we can see a a root uh, in that that mindset is in Roman traditions and in Hellenistic societies. So – Jesus was not a Christian. Christianity did not come about until hundreds of years after Jesus died. Jesus was a Jewish man. And by the time Rome got its hands and infused imperial values and um, and uh, nationalistic ideals into the text, they took their value of monogamous marriage and inserted it into the text, which is why there's such a contradiction between both Testaments. Um, so we've got a problem with marriage right off the bat. So if you're trying to portray this ideal of a biblical marriage from the pulpit, it's not really there. 
And if we're trying to nail down a specific sexual ethic throughout the scriptures, it's not there either. So what I think the church should do is shut the bedroom door. We've been talking about this way too long. And if sex is occurring between two consenting adults and it's respectful and it's about giving pleasure to each other so they can enjoy this life experience, more power to them because the Bible, in my opinion, has far more to say about the condition people are sleeping in than who people are sleeping with. Hmm. Mm. That's a mic drop right there. Yeah. Hey, it's on a stand. I, I, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Going to take a short break right here to give you all a handy discount for starting off Masturbation May on the right foot. So if y'all have not heard me talk about them yet, Balesa Boutique is one of my favorite sex toy stores at theboutique.co. It is the number one sex rated toy store on Google. And I just want to help, you know, get you in the mood a little bit. So not only do they have sex toys, but they also have basically the Netflix of porn under Balesa Plus. So if you want some ethical porn, meaning, you know, you know that the actors are taken care of, you know that they are having informed consent, you know that people are being treated fairly. Um, Balesa wants you to both enjoy yourself and also not feel guilty about watching porn that you don't know how people are being treated. So they're empowering you to choose what you want to pay for porn no catch. So you literally pay whatever you want. You can pause or cancel with one click at any time. And Balesa Plus offers 100% discreet billing. So guilt-free, just head on over to balesaplus.co slash Taylor. Choose what you want to pay and enjoy Balesa's porn, erotica, and sex education all guilt-free. Again, that's balesaplus.co slash Taylor and pay what you want for the Netflix of porn. There's a lot of shit that you just said that is so new for me and that I'm like, I have no idea because like, that's not my area. I've never gone into that at all, but it Mm -hmm. all makes sense as you say it and kind of just reinforces this like intense frustration that I have felt around how we essentially use in in our culture religion as a weapon to stigmatize sex um and 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 create all of this all of this i honestly trauma is the word i want to use um around sure. how we engage with our bodies um mm-hmm. how we how we interact with other bodies when it comes to uh pleasure and sexuality and yeah, I'm very, very uh, not far in reading um, this book, Braiding Sweetgrass, um, all about like indigenous wisdom and, and knowledge. And just in the first few sections, you know, you learn about the Sky Woman and she kind of compares it to Sky Woman versus like Adam and Eve, you know, this the story of mm-hmm. like the creation and this notion that like Eve was she was essentially punished for engaging in pleasure. Um, and, and sky woman is mm. all about flourishing is mutual. Right. And we're gonna, you know, she comes down she like has the nuts and seeds in her hands and she spreads them around and like the people and the animals come together. It's such a beautiful story. <laughs> that's awesome. It's so beautiful. I'm like, Oh, that's such a different like thing than like take and you're punished and you're exiled and pleasure is not like something you should engage in. And again, 
Adam and Eve, I'm sure there's things to it that I don't know. Um, but just from my own like mainstream cultural understanding of it, um, it does create this sense of like, don't engage in pleasure. It's bad for you. Uh, you have to earn it, especially as a woman, um, especially if you have a vulva or a vagina. Um, mm-hmm. And that, as you were saying, that the Bible has a lot of misogynistic uh, ideals and, and kind of concepts within it um, that really just create shame around around our bodies Absolutely. and create like a what I want to say is like an intense power differential that reinforces patriarchy, which hurts all of us. Sure. It absolutely does. And I think one thing that you've done is you've exhibited a healthy, what we would call like exegesis of, of holistic teachings of creation poems, right? Mm -hmm. Like the problem, I think, where it begins with a lot of Christians is they open things up and they see Genesis chapter one in the beginning, God created. And they're like, okay, cool. God created this in the beginning. He did it in six days. And they use masculine pronouns for God. And they kind of take the English version as literal truth. Mm -hmm. Uh, I take the Bible far too seriously to read any of it literally. And Mm -hmm. most of the reason that I do that is because one of the first things you learn in seminary is that Genesis is a poem it's a metaphor until much later in church history, it was never read as literal metaphor. In fact, Jewish peoples, they share this text that they would never, most of them would never tell you to read it as a literal story, but Christians do because again, toxic theology made its way into the church. And there's so many things in that first chapter of Genesis that people either read as metaphor or don't know because they don't read in the original language. Like for example, God is portrayed as very masculine mm-hmm. in the Bible. In the first chapter of the Bible, he is seen throughout that text. The ancient Hebrew word for God in Genesis is Elohim, and it's neither male nor female. It's actually meant to be not only gender neutral, but gender fluid. It's a, it's, you know, God is trans and masculine and feminine. God is all of us. That's what's meant to be portrayed in that term. So the first word we have for God is not masculine, which so many Christians don't know this and it blows my mind. And then they, you know, go on from there and they take the story as it's like a history book. And that's a giant mistake. Like there's so many people that are reasonable people that align with Christian ethics that shut the doors to the church because they've, they've, refuse to consider the possibility that the evolution didn't happen and they're they're not going to church for all the right reasons Mm. uh so i mean it's it's a metaphor just because it's not literally true doesn't mean that there isn't powerful truth in the text you can find truth in any story Mm. uh but you know taking the bible as scientific fact there, there's where a lot of the problems start because when you start looking at this binary situation at where God made Adam and Eve and only Adam and Eve, that's yeah. where a lot of their toxic theology starts. Yeah. And they start saying, God only made these two to be together. And then they use that and they start oppressing LGBT people. And, you know, it just goes on from there. Ugh. It's nasty, nasty stuff. And it's why I stay in the church, because I feel like if we can, if we can redirect this narrative, 
to talk about truths that they teach in seminary and not just in progressive seminaries, but Mm -hmm. in conservative seminaries, they teach you this stuff. But pastors refuse to talk about it because they don't want to lose their congregants, Mm -hmm. one, because they feel like they don't want to stir the pot too much. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they don't want to lose their job, which I guess I can sympathize with because people have bills to pay. And, you know, I don't think pastors at these Six Flags Over Jesus churches need to be driving Corvettes, but at the same time, you know, if they work, they need to be paid and they're worried about their families Mm -hmm. in tough economic times. I get that. Um, Or they don't want to let go of the superstitious theology that they learned in Sunday school when they were six years old. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're clinging to Santa and the Easter bunny. Mm -hmm. And for me, those are just really bad reasons not to talk about this because there's so many people that are feeling shame Mm -hmm. about their sexual identity or their gender identity or pleasuring their body, which is a natural Mm -hmm. thing to do in this human experience. I mean, hell, I'm going to be honest. I do it. So there is nothing sinfully wrong with it. And yet that is something that is all too common in the church. So that's why I I stay in it to kind of keep, you know, pushing the boundaries of Mm -hmm. uh, what Christianity became versus what it was intended to be. Yeah. Well, I can already tell, I mean, you're you're hitting it. You said they're holding on to Santa and the Easter Bunny. I mean, you can have some people in their fields. <laughs> uh, but that's, it's, that's truth. I mean, all of that, absolutely. Um, you know, this, I, I never knew this about the first word that we actually had for God. Is it God or Jesus? It's God. God, okay. So first, God. It- yeah. What was Mm -hmm. the word again? Elohim. Elohim. Uh, I had no idea of all of that. And I mean, again, all of this makes so much sense. I'm sure my listeners know exactly where I'm going this going with this, but like it's white supremacy. Um, because it absolutely is. <laughs> it's again, it's this concept and I'm always going back to this too, but, um, the book fearing the black body with, uh, Sabrina strings had her on the podcast as well. And it talks about the racial origins of fat phobia, but even going through the history of it, you're, understanding that for centuries, things were put in place to define beauty, to define love, to define relationship, all while exploiting black labor with the uh, transatlantic slave trade, with the development of like Anglo-Saxon beliefs and creating this religion and this lifestyle, really, and these concepts of health, all to preserve the white family. Absolutely. Uh, So white supremacy originated in the church, and I believe it's the church's, or it should be one of our number one responsibility to participate in dismantling this monster that we created. Mm -hmm. Uh, For centuries, the church has been in the front row wearing a foam finger on the wrong side of history. We have been, you know, not only... uh, projecting toxic values. The, the white church has benefited from those values, which is why they're constantly being projected. But the the transatlantic slave trade, like you discussed, mm-hmm. the concept of manifest destiny, the, which led to the genocide and of native peoples and the stealing of their land, that originated in the church. And 
you know, the church loves to say that they've got these heroes of the faith like Martin Luther King and amazing leaders in the Christian tradition that did amazing work to undo that stuff. But when you take a step back and you take a macro view of it, who was responsible for creating the shit they were fighting against in the first place? It was the church. So for me, I celebrate Dr. King. Dr. King is worth celebrating, but the church gets absolutely no credit for that bullshit. The church needs to sit back and listen and be an active participant in dismantling white supremacy and, and patriarchy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm so happy you're here. I'm happy to be this here. Is... I love to, I talk about this all day. Yeah. I've got whiskey and I've, I'm talking about masturbation and theology. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> yes. Well, so, I mean, I'm wondering like what that was like for you growing up, you know, absorbing these ideals, kind of doing your own unpacking of this to be where you're at today of what messages you received about masturbation and how, how that relationship evolved to where you're at today. Um, so I was always taught that, you know, touching yourself, even thinking about it was sinful. Um, and, and they would always talk about verses like if you, in the New Testament, it says if you uh, look on a woman with lust, you should gouge your own eyes out. And they would use that message to talk oh, about does. how serious masturbation was. But I find it funny now that I'm looking back on it. Like when we talk about the problem of slut shaming in Christianity, which is very prevalent in Christianity, I think it's funny that that verse tells you that if you look at a woman and you are feeling any type of sexual desire for her and you don't want it, instead of punishing her, you should gouge your own eyes out. I think that's, I think that's, you know, <laughs> I think that's actually kind of more wholesome than what the church teaches now. Um, but when talking about like masturbation, you know, they've shamed people from, from experiencing natural sexual desires. And what's funny is masturbation uh, and abortion, by the way, both of those things aren't in the Bible at all. There is an urban legend about a verse of the Bible that says, um, the quote that people say that's in the Bible but isn't, is... Um, it is better to spill your seed in the belly of a whore, whore than in the dirt. Have That's actually that. not in the Bible. It's it's totally myth. It, it's not in the Bible. There is a verse where it it condemns a person that isn't masturbating, but he pulls out mm-hmm. and does not uh, ejaculate inside of a woman because it was culturally... Um, it was encouraged at that time if you were to lose your husband so you could have a child to take care of you and you didn't have one, that that husband's brother would give you a child so that their bloodline would continue. Mm-hmm. That was the practice back then. It's actually not even discouraging pulling out. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost discouraging people not participating in a tradition that was designed to take care of that woman back yeah. then. Uh, but people use that even to discourage masturbation. So the Bible doesn't actually talk about it. But for me, you know, I grew up every time I thought about my teacher, I had a gorgeous biology teacher. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was a lucky sophomore. And every time I thought about her in a sexual way, I was like, you know, that night I'm like, oh, geez, I got to go get saved again tomorrow at church mm-hmm. because Christopher masturbated, you know. Yeah. Oh, sorry, God. I've been, I've been saved so many times after I've been masturbated. It's unreal. Yeah. Uh, and then to find out that this stuff didn't, didn't exist in the Bible. I, I mean, it just blows my mind. It almost makes me angry mm-hmm. uh, at the church because of the amount of trauma that they're yeah. putting on these kids in youth camps and these retreats where they're talking about, you know, purity rings and staying pure. And, 
you know, not not being a, a tainted flower. I remember Ooh. one past one pastor passed a flower around during their sermon, and they passed it to hundreds of kids at this retreat that I went to when I was sixteen or seventeen. And by the time the flower made it back to the stage, it was all bent because everybody had been touching it and feeling the petals. And it was a gorgeous flower, so people were smelling it. The petals were falling off. And he was using it to talk about virginity. And he was saying, now that everybody's touched this flower, who wants it? And looking back on that, it's so contrary to the message of the Bible. Because even if you did believe in a literal God, I don't, but if you did, the message in the Bible if you take it literally, is God wants that fucking flower. God loves that flower. There's nothing wrong with that flower. And and the church has built in self-hatred in its foundation. it's, It's rooted from the moment you go to Sunday school to the moment you die in the church. You hate yourself for having sexual desire. And it's gotta stop. Mm -hmm. It's teaching compliance. Out of fear. It is. Out of fear. And, you know, the amount of therapy that people need is unreal. And unfortunately, because we don't take mental health care seriously in America, mm-hmm. they can't afford mental health care. So where do they go when they need it? Or, I mean, to like, their pastor. yeah, you go to confessional and that's how you're saving yourself now, which, oh, goodness gracious. I think this is why I don't talk about this frequently because it is so frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. And... I mean, just this concept of, you know, this exercise, like I've heard of people doing this before and it's fucked up on so many levels, but it's like, when I do hear that, you're right. It's like, I think, well, isn't like Jesus and God's actual message to like love everyone, like then, then, yeah, why wouldn't you love that flower still? And, And why wouldn't we look and see the beauty of that flower being able to experience connection or pleasure yeah. from all of those people that, that there's a level of connectedness now that that flower has had with several people, uh, as being a beautiful thing. Like that's just not, mm-hmm. that's not a part of it. No. It, it, and it's not even talked about. And then when you do talk about these things, they, the church has this wonderful defense mechanism where they label you a heretic and they shut you down and then they start talking about how you're uh, teaching sinful values and you should shun this person. Part of the reason I moved to California is because we had a church plant that we started. Uh, we didn't take any money from our congregants at all, but our leadership would pool our resources together and we would take 5 to 10% of our income and we would create a a a really good family meal, show up at a park and give free food to people. And we would have worship in the park and things like that. But one of the things that set us apart from other churches in the deep South is we were open and affirming LGBTQ. Mm. And there was a, a support your Chick-fil-A day that was going on in the deep South because, which by the way, it's really shitty chicken. If you're from the deep South, like we have so many better options than Chick-fil-A, but like the line was just, you know, around blocks of Christians going to support Chick-fil-A because Chick-fil-A was outed for supporting anti LGBT organizations with their corporate funds, not with their personal funds, which is problematic enough, but with corporate money, I was the only pastor in the entire region to show up to protest that. And uh, I remember people threw their waffle fries at me 
that had not one, but like three Jesus fish on the back of their car. Uh. <laughs> like They're throwing waffle fries at me and call me a heretic, which I'm Irish on both sides. And, you know, it's a little known fact. I'm a little on the heavier side. If you're going to offend me, throwing fried potatoes at me is not the way to do it. Like, you're just helping me <laughs> Those out. Those waffle fries, they but, are good. As much as I don't want to support yeah, your play, those waffle fries, <laughs> they are good. <laughs> Well, I didn't support them. They were free. They were thrown True. Me, there so. you go. You're, you're not wanting to contribute to the food waste in this country. I, I appreciate that. So, but one of the things that happened the next week is our congregants were just gone. And we had like 60 people showing up with kids, 70 people showing up on a weekly basis. Wow. The local Christian radio station had heard that I was a participant and started putting out just on loop, do not go to this church. They're heretics. They're teaching the devil's work, don't attend, and instantly it destroyed our church. Um, and it's it's one of those things that's really frustrating. And one thing that we didn't really talk about, I'm, I'm sorry to dominate the conversation. I just, I love talking Go about this it. stuff. Uh, one of the things that we didn't talk about was LGBT identity in the scriptures, because in English, the Bible does say that it's a sin to be a homosexual. That word didn't appear in English until the 1940s. Before that, the word was, yeah, it was, it was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And it came out of anti LGBT theology that was starting to really get more traction in the church. I mean, it'd been there for a while, but it was like kind of resurging. So Mm -hmm. they put it in there. There's eight words in the original language of either ancient Hebrew or Koine Greek that is homosexual in English. They're different words. None of them mean a a lesbian or a gay person or trans person or a bisexual person Mm -hmm. in in context. It means uh, rapist, pedophile, or greedy, like corporate billionaire greedy in context, which, you know, Mm -hmm. America. America. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, all of those things I think everybody of every faith could agree or should agree that these are sinful things. Mm-hmm. So th- this anti-LGBT, the- uh, anti-LGBT theology stems from scriptures that never were. What is interesting is there is one verse, and it's the only verse in the Bible where a gay person is presented. It's in the Gospels, so it's the red letters. Uh, it's the important ones. Uh, I have no Christians idea what like any of say. that means, but I'm, I'm with it, you. It's... <laughs> They, they tend to value the Gospels more than any other text, which is anti-Semitic in nature. But that's they're like the red letters are the important ones. So if you are an if evangelical Christian, what is happening? Yeah, well, actually, so what's funny is Jesus was a you know Palestinian yeah. man of color yep. rabbi, and the church hates. All of those identities right now is as far as their behavior is concerned. At least the far their right behavior, does. their and money. All of that stuff. But they take verses and they twist them to match their narrative. It's very easy to cherry pick anything. Mm-hmm. You can do it with a little engine that could, and you can make it say whatever you wanted to condemn anybody. And there, there is this verse, though, where a centurion's servant, is what it says in English, comes to Jesus, or the centurion comes to Jesus about his servant, rather. Um, and his servant is at home, and he's sick, and he's dying. And the centurion approaches Jesus and says, please come heal my servant. I love this person. The Greek word for servant is pais, and it means male lover. It does not mean servant. This is the only time where we see a gay person in scripture being mentioned. Jesus goes to their house. 
Jesus heals the person of their dying ailment and never condemns their sexuality. If there was ever a time where it was going to be condemned in context, it would have been in that moment and Jesus said nothing. And where Jesus says nothing, then the church should shut the hell up about it, do we know, in my opinion. Do we know how he healed this person? How, how Just Jesus, he, they, because Jesus, mm-hmm. is Jesus the Palestinian that we're discussing? Would mm-hmm. that have been that word that I'm already forgetting how to pronounce that is like gender fluid or... You know, from a scientific perspective, if Jesus didn't have a biological father, like the evangelicals claim, which I believe Mary was not a virgin, that's another thing of bad theology we can get into later, Um, all that bad stuff. But if that was true, it's not. But if it was, then Jesus doesn't have the Y chromosome, which means Jesus can't be male. Yo. You spilling it all. <laughs> this, this, sorry, I just hit my mic. Uh, this stuff gets me so That's like okay. it gets me so worked up though because I'm like I I try to balance. Granted, there are not a lot of uh, very religious people in my life, um, and the ones that are like I had my friend Morgan on a while ago. This would have been over a year ago. She was on the podcast, and she kind of went through you know this process where she found community in church and uh, she was you know, hoping to work her way up to being a pastor, um, you know, did a missionary trip. And I was like, oh um, but she like really just got into it. And even mm-hmm. when we have these conversations, I mean, in that episode, you know, we kind of talk through it about like just kind of being on different ends of this, but still being friends. And other than her, you know, there's maybe one or two friends that like have gone to church in the past or like, well, you know, occasionally like for Christmas, you know, do stuff or Easter, mm-hmm. but actually having conversations with people about like uh, what religion says about LGBT or about abortion or about these things, like my brain just short circuits and I just can't because I end up just wanting to like shake people and be like, what are you even saying? This doesn't even make sense to me, but not wanting to be rude Mm -hmm. and not wanting to be judgmental about it. And also knowing, you know, I'm not, I've never read the Bible. I'm not super educated in it either. So like, I'm not going to, in a, you know, debate with someone, right? Like, I don't know what, mm-hmm. what to come back at with this kind of stuff, but all of what you're saying makes so much sense where it's like, yeah, there is so much of this that has just been picked and 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 yep. taken and transformed in order to meet the systems and the concepts and the um, foundations of white supremacy. And this is where, like we say, Mm -hmm. uh, pleasure is resistance because when you allow yourself to actually engage in that pleasure, you're basically saying, fuck all of these things that are telling me right now that I don't deserve to, that it's bad or it's a Mm -hmm. sin for me to, uh, or that I have to earn this, right? If I'm uh, married, if I'm monogamous, if I'm cis, if I'm, you know, all these things, if I'm having a baby, then it's okay. Like, Mm -hmm you're fighting against all of that when you do engage in pleasure and just hearing this of like, you know, servant, (laughs) you spilled it. I was not no servant. Um, (laughs) but like, but, but just picking and and taking these things, um, gosh, it, it, it makes me really wonder, you know, on one hand, well, why, if, if these things are not actually rooted in scientific or even if you're taking it as is, as truth even, then why is there such a hold to it? And in part, I think because 
what church today is, is that it's created community. It gives people a sense of understanding of what life is. And life can feel really, really fucking scary, right? And like, what are we supposed Mm -hmm. to do? How are we supposed to live? It's kind of this like falsehood of... Um, you know, this is how you live a moral life. This is how you live a good life. This is how you make sure you're rewarded in the next life. And here's a bunch of community with it as well. Um, but I think it, it also, in a subtextual context, maybe for folks that they don't really understand it, is that it is helping uphold white supremacy because that includes these anti-LGBTQIA concepts, right? It includes the financial wealth gap of things. It includes, um, you know, the strong heteronormative monogamous um, thing that's pushed out there. It also does include things, I mean, I think around around health and around food and around uh, fat phobia and anti-fatness even sure. um, with like mm-hmm. gluttony, right? And like being like, it mm. just, I, I don't know, maybe I'm off here. Is there like scripture that you can think of that like includes um, that element of this? Oh yeah, I mean, there's there's fat phobia that's being projected from the pulpit, but when it talks about gluttony in the Bible, again, it's more condemning the practice of taking more than you need and not sharing mm. with others. And I mean, Jesus was a socialist in every yeah. way, shape, form. I mean, maybe not, you know, maybe socialism as we know it didn't exist back then. But if Jesus was going to more align with any other economic yeah. stance, it would be socialism. And, and the problem is uh, the church was created to to uphold imperial power, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And what the system has done is it's cranked out chaplains of empire, and I think a lot of these people are well-intended, but they don't realize that white supremacy is baked into theology for a reason, because it's designed to keep powerful people powerful. It's designed to subdue us, because if we can create a theology where there is this utopian afterlife, then we stop caring about the suffering that we experience on a daily basis as much, right? So what's interesting is... From a biblical perspective, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus did not believe in a heaven or a hell. Again, these are Hellenistic ideals from Rome that got injected into Christianity. And what was Rome but an ancient version of America, right? Like Rome was trying to maintain power. And the whole reason Rome chose Christianity to to, uh, infiltrate and to use for its own advantage was because Christianity was growing. And rather than losing power, Rome just kind of shed its clothing and became something else. So it converted its temples. But a lot of the ideals that were there to to promote empire and to nurture empire were infused with Christianity. So they put that in a blender, they pressed puree and out popped the church. And a lot of people don't know this, uh, but again, you know, church is designed to either distract us from the ills of this life, from the sinful behaviors of this life, which in my mind is white supremacy, corporate greed, mm-hmm. is uh, intolerance, mm-hmm. is environmental destruction. These things are biblically sinful, in my opinion, and they should be taken seriously. Yeah. Or it's designed to ritualize complicity. And what happens every time we have a national tragedy is people come to the church and they're looking for answers or possibly ways to get involved, and their pastor gets up and sometimes well-intentioned and sometimes bigoted. It just 
just depends on the pastor. They spew this message of what heaven's going to look like, and immediately it subdues their congregants and puts them back in complacency. And that is part of the problem. It is the problem. Ritual complacency. Oh, that hits. Damn. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it in a way creates this sense of toxic positivity of like, we're going to pray for them. We're, we're all, we're yeah. praying. When you see mass shooting after mass shooting, it's, we're going to pray mm-hmm. for everybody. Okay. But you could also vote for like gun control laws. Like, what do you, what do you mean? Yeah. You're just going to pray for them and things are going to be okay. Yeah. And how odd is it that there's more caps being popped in schools than quizzes on a weekly basis? Oh, um. And the church is, you know, on the side of the NRA, but the Bible is so anti-weapon. Jesus was anti-weapon, yet what the church is known for is being pro-abortion, not in the Bible, being anti-masturbation, not in the Bible, being anti-LGBT, not in the Bible, being pro-masculine theology Mm -hmm. and projecting a masculine image of God, not in the Bible, being pro-weapon, which is definitely not in the Bible. And yet, what does the church look like? If I were to ask anybody that doesn't attend a church, what do they value more than anything? They're going to say guns, uh, restraining yourself sexually. They're going to say being anti-abortion. They're going to say voting Republican Mm -hmm. and being pro-capitalist. None of that bullshit was in the Bible. I don't know where the fuck it came from. I mean, I know where it came from. It came from white supremacy, like we were talking about. And it's hijacked my faith. And I think one of the most beneficial things that Christians can do, or people that just admire the Christian faith, maybe you're not a Christian, but Mm -hmm. maybe you're just tired of Christians using scripture to uh, vote Mm -hmm. with toxic values in their mind. Start talking about it. Start shutting down that that racist uncle mm-hmm. that uses the Bible to smack people over the face with their intolerance. Yeah. Start calling that bullshit out. And if you need information on how to do that, I mean, there I'm not alone. I know it seems like I'm rare. The difference between me and some of these folks is I'm just more brash. Mm. Um, But there are theologians that are much older than myself that have been doing the work. Uh, There's folks like Bart Ehrman. There's folks like Rob Bell. There's Mm -hmm. folks like Nadia Boltz-Weber. There's William Barber, the the head pastor of the Poor People's Campaign. If you've never heard him speak, but such a powerful preacher on racial justice and social Mm. justice. You know, do the work, send them links, call them out, and cut them off if necessary, because sometimes consequences are all that's going to fix these people. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I'm just, you know, I'm tired of watching these scriptures that I admire, that I take far too seriously to read literally, being used to hurt people. Mm-hmm. Because in my mind, they were written to do just the opposite. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I think even. Uh, from I think I had like a basic religion course in undergrad and it was like learning about all these religions, like majority, specifically Christianity, just seemed like it had started so many wars, like it had hurt so many people that it was like, what good does this really do? I really couldn't find anything other than like create community and like trick mm-hmm. you into thinking about this like fantasy life that helps you uh, cope better with your day-to-day life um, and all of the mm-hmm. uncertainty that's in it. And maybe that sounds a bit bitchy and mean, but that no, was kind doesn't. of, I was like, okay, I guess this is like the, the draw. Mm-hmm. 
No, institutional religion teaches some really uh, lazy coping mechanisms mm-hmm. for the struggles of life. And it, it, I think there's a reason for that. It's to keep you calm and complacent and things of that nature. I do think people need community. Um, and I don't think you necessarily need to find that in the church. And that's kind of where our church spends our time focusing more on communal aspects and less about, you know, spirituality, more about ethical teachings, moral teachings, and creating community. Uh, The downside is this is not exclusive to Christianity because one of the things that I see that's very similar uh, spiritually is this idea of positivity, right? Like that comes about with new age spirituality, Which is really just repackaged white supremacy too yep. in yoga pants. I mean, that's, yeah, well, it's cultural that's, appropriation it's, in yoga pants. It is. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. And they've they've taught that oh, if you just think the right way, then things are going to work out for you. And usually, people that are teaching that are people of privilege that come from financially stable backgrounds. Yeah. Uh, so I think one thing that we got to be very careful uh, with the coming generation, I, I, I say with us young people, but I, I'm, I'm not young anymore. <laughs> it's all right. Include um, yourself. No one's going to know. <laughs> but I think for the next generation, one thing to be careful of is, you know, don't just be worried about toxic theology. Be worried about those harmful ideals when they manifest themselves in other spiritual practices too, because white supremacy is sneaky like oh, that. Oh, it is. And, and um, so just be very aware mm-hmm. would be mm. yeah, something to look out for. Well, so how do you then, like, I'm wondering as a pastor, how do you go about creating a community of sex positivity within this space? Mm-hmm. Well, we have people in our church that are poly. We have people in our church that are monogamous. We have people in our church that are, we have leaders in our church that are part of the LGBT community. Uh, I ordain weddings in the LGBT community. Um, I affirm sex positivity in, in you know, almost all of our teachings. Uh, one thing that for me, I think is important in churches is to shut down values that make their way into that make that space unsafe. Yeah. We have a tendency in the church to say we want everybody to feel welcome. Mm-hmm. But the problem is when bigots are comfortable, then everyone's not yeah. safe. One of the most important values if you're going to be an inclusive church is to shut down values that are, are exclusive from the pulpit. And if that means losing them, then don't let the door hit them where the good Lord split them. But I think for us, speaking inclusion and shutting down exclusion is one of the most valuable things we do as a community. Hmm. It self-regulates our congregants where we're not going to be a huge Six Flags Over Jesus church. Yeah. But I think most of our congregants feel safe and that's what's important to me. Yeah. Yeah. That is a important distinction there too, because I mean, you know, you can't just make it an inclusive space without it actually feeling like a welcoming space for folks mm-hmm. to actually be uh, fully who they are. Um Mm-hmm. As you say, you know, the Six Flags churches, um, there was a series, I'm totally blanking on the name of it right now, but on HBO, did you watch this? Do you know what I'm talking about? It had, um, mm. oh my goodness. It was basically, they were yeah, oh, a family church. I, um, mm-hmm. I didn't get to watch it yet. And you know what's funny is I forgot about it until you mentioned it. So now I have something to binge. <laughs> So the righteous that. gemstones. That's what it was. The righteous yep. gemstones. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think, I mean, I, I, part of me even wonders, you know, how like 
churches feel about things like that being put out there when it feels granted again I'm very distant from church communities and and all of that but that feels like a it's not very far off of a representation of what some of those really high up uh you know pastors with the Bentleys and whatever um what the lifestyle is where like they might be preaching these things on one end but then on in their own life they're you know engaging in all of this sin uh when again because it is in alignment with white supremacy and with what is considered to be successful in our culture i don't think they view it as a sin um i don't know which you know again from the gospels from the texts that are centric to the life of jesus jesus was the most anti-billionaire mm-hmm. you know um yeah activists that ever lived. I mean, one of the things that got Jesus crucified was turning over the tables of money changers because it was being taxed and benefiting Roman Empire. Mm -hmm. And Jesus was also known for teaching things like sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. And the early church, for all intents and purposes, before Rome got its, you know, claws in it, was a communist community. They sold their possessions and they shared with each other to make sure they all had food, shelter, and, you know, basic human needs. Yet the Christian nation in our world looks nothing like that. Yeah. So I feel like it's safe to say then that Jesus would vote for Bernie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Bernie Sanders, one of, one of the things that blew my mind was that on the right and even the mainline left um, church, that Bernie Sanders wasn't the top choice for people. I'm like, you know, the the person that we value, that we worship was an activist that was teaching socialistic values mm-hmm. that was brash and uh, sometimes even a disruptor yeah. publicly uh, of cultural normatives. And yet the person that I've seen that looks most like him ethically mm-hmm. was not top of the list. Yeah. And that, that shocks me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm happy that we don't have Trump mm-hmm. anymore, but I was shocked that Bernie wasn't the top choice for most yeah. people. Well, because he goes against those things that all of these people benefit from of the greed, of the capitalism, mm-hmm. of being able to exploit other people and having that ritualistic complacency. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you do so the opposite of that, it sounds like, with your church. Um, you have a you we have do. a brewery. Can you, we do. Can you talk on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, like people... People often hear about our brewery and they're like, this is new and it's radical. And it's not actually. Uh, in European countries, churches have had breweries. Monks have been brewing beer for centuries. Uh, you may have heard of the, the beer Chimay. Uh, you may have seen it on tap in some places. I don't, I don't places. Drink and, anything, so I, I'm the wrong okay. person well, it's, to it's, ask it's, in, that, in that area, <laughs> but yes. If you... If you have beer enthusiasts that listen, they may have seen Chimay on tap anywhere, and they may just think it's a Belgian-style beer, but it's actually brewed by monks, and all the money goes to orphanages. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to joke when people would come over, I'd always have a six-pack of it in my fridge, and they were like, what's this? I'm like, oh, it's my tithe. I'm like, because it goes to orphanages. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> um, we, we had this big building that sat like 500 people, and we would at most have like 80 or 90 because we were relaunching a new progressive church out of this existing community. And even when we were, you know, at our max of a couple hundred for Easter, the room still still felt like empty because it was so big. It was built in the 60s mm-hmm. when 
everything was closed on Sunday, so everybody just yeah. went to church. It was part of culture. And what ended up happening is the maintenance of the place was just so expensive, we couldn't really do as much good in the community as we wanted to. It was taking away funding mm-hmm. from from things that we were passionate about, like other nonprofits. Mm-hmm. So we, what we decided to do was sell that property and take the money and build a brewery where 30 to 60% of the profits will go to local charities like the NAACP, like the Homeless Garden Project, like Planned Parenthood and local environmental organizations and uh, organizations that support LGBTQ citizens and LGBT youth. Because that's what we did on Sunday anyway. Most of our congregants just couldn't afford to donate. Mm -hmm. But what they do is they will go out to eat or have a drink with their friends. So if we can create a space, in my mind, where people don't have to choose between leisure and charity. Mm. Because right now, as unjust uh, of of an economic state as we have in this country is, they do have to make that choice. They, They have to choose between staying sane from working three jobs and maybe going to have a drink with their Mm -hmm. friends and, you know, donating 20 bucks to an organization they're passionate about. If we can eliminate that decision and they can accomplish both in the same place, then I think we'll do some good for the community. So we started the Greater Purpose Brewing Company. Our church is Greater Purpose Community Mm -hmm. Church. We sold our building, opened Greater Purpose Brewing Company, and it's in Santa Cruz, California. And 30 to 60% of profits will go to those local charities. And even though we're in the red right now because of the pandemic, we have seating regulations and things like that, we're still donating uh, at least $200 a month to each organization, even though we're not Mm -hmm. profitable. But once that changes, we're... Yeah. You know, hopefully 60 to 80% is kind of my target market margin of what I would like to mm-hmm. see. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that does make a ton of sense. And I think, you know, I mean, even just when I think about like growing up, like donating our money, that was not like, especially, I mean, my mom was a single mom, you know, like mm-hmm. there, there is not a huge emphasis in our culture on actually donating our money. And I think in large part, because there is such um, inequality when it comes to wealth. And also because within our system uh, of white supremacy, there is a dehumanizing of folks Mm -hmm. who do not meet those standards, who are in need of help. And in fact, it... Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, the people who are in need of help are being exploited, and the people who could be giving them that help and donating that money are benefiting from the fact that those people need help. Um, So it's just so backwards, but I think so many people do, even working class folks have to, you know, make that intentional thought of like, oh yeah, I should donate some of my money, even though I'm stressed about paying for this and paying for that and trying to like, you know, have success for myself. Like, honestly, I think after summer 2020, there is more of an emphasis uh, culturally for folks, I guess, just maybe the white people who are now aware of racism uh, to have that thought, but it's really not a, I don't think it's, it's that important for most people to donate and and share Mm -hmm. that wealth and have that kind of just having the importance and the connection to donating, even just within your community. I mean, I look Mm -hmm. at the farmer's market like that, like that's me engaging with my community, but absolutely. So 
so disconnected. It, 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 it's so disconnected. And I think, you know, one of the things that happens in church is there's this guilt trip that's being placed oh, yeah. on people that are impoverished that you should tithe and then God will bless yeah. you. And then people are so desperate to get out of poverty. They're like, take my money, even though it's going to cause my family to suffer more, take this money and they give it to the church and then nothing happens. And then that certainly doesn't help with their mental state either, right? Like, so it's a really bad praxis. Uh, It's not an orthodoxy, but it is an orthopraxis in the church. And I think for me, one of the most important things that we did, even when we had a building, was eliminate tithing. Like we would take donations for organizations on Sunday mornings, like Planned Parenthood, mm-hmm. like the Diversity Center, like the NAACP and other nonprofits, but we gave 100% of it mm-hmm. out. And we did that for two reasons. One, because if people want to give an excess, we want them to give to social justice initiatives because we believe that's biblically based. Uh, and we had other means of surviving as a church. We rented our facility out as a community mm-hmm. center. So that's how we paid the bills. Uh, so, But as far as charity was concerned, we want people to donate to the causes that are doing Doing the work. That was number one. Number two, the problem is that people that can really afford to give 10% of their income are rich people of privilege, usually. And if you look at the biggest, most successful churches in this country, they're usually funded by rich people of privilege. And the one thing that all of those churches have in common is they all teach the same theological filth of Republican Christianity and, you know, this this uh, Republican MAGA Jesus that most of them were Trump supporting and things like that because that's what the pastor was expected to teach because he was funded by people that had those ideals. Uh. So what I can do, what I can do now that I don't take tithes and offerings, if you come in as a, you know, MAGA style Christian is I can say, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. Mm-hmm. And there's no pressure for me to be worried about staff or how we're going to pay bills or any of that. So I can speak ethical truth without being weighed down by conservative expectation. Burn it all down. (laughs) I hate it. I hate it. Me too. And I, and I work for Jesus. (laughs) Um, Mm-hmm. Where I, I know you mentioned kind of like the the names of the brewery where you're located. Where else can people kind of find you to hear more about either like how to get in, you know involved with what you're doing, um, how to listen to you speak more? Uh, where are the places that people can find you? So uh, if you're a reader, I wrote a book called Reborn Again, Crucifying Christendom and Resurrecting a Radical. And it's kind of the story of my transition from being a conservative evangelical Christian, because contrary to how I'm, I'm talking right now, I are in the past, one of those bigoted evangelical Christians, I was the worst of them. And I came out of that. Uh, so the whole book is about a journey. That's an exit an exodus mm-hmm. from evangelical theology. So if you want to read that and, you know, kind of dive into a little bit more of the historical reasoning for my transition and the biblical reasoning for my transition, there's mm-hmm. that uh, it's available. Uh, it's available online. Just mm-hmm. Google it. And, uh, and then if you want to listen to our sermons, we have a live stream on Sundays. It's on YouTube live. You can look up greater purpose community church and participate there. But if you're into the podcast, which I'm assuming most of your listeners mm-hmm. are, uh, we have a podcast of the sermons. And if you look up revved up theolitics, so it's kind of like a blend of theology and mm-hmm. politics, you can find our sermons on a weekly basis and listen mm-hmm. there and input. Welcome. Yeah. 
would love to hear people's thoughts and uh, well, yeah. you did an episode yeah. on continue the conversation. Yeah, and well, you did an episode on purity culture as well. There, yeah, I did. I sh- I sure did. I've done a few. Uh, in fact, we're talking about the harmful nature of hope mm-hmm. this week and how hope often. Uh, encourages people to sit in complicity yeah. this week. So yeah. kind of expounds on what we were talking about a little bit mm-hmm. earlier. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I'm like, I could go on and on. I got so many more questions and points here. Sure. Um, but thank you so much for your time and, and for sharing all of this. Um, this has been great. It has been awesome. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having more conversations with you. And if you're ever in the area, stop on by. Uh, I know you don't drink, but we've got kombucha. I got one on me for you. I love me some good some good kombucha. Thank you. We got that too. <laughs> Take it easy. All right. That does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for making it all the way through and keeping your ears, your hearts, and your minds open. It would mean so much to me if you could take a second or two after listening to this episode to leave a review on iTunes and let me know what you're enjoying about the show. I love reading you know, what your favorite episodes are, where you guys listen, um, and definitely feel free to share this with a friend. I mean, part of how we break down the stigmas around these topics is by talking about them, right? And, and sharing them with more people. So definitely share the podcast. Um, and again, really wanting to include all of you in this podcast. So if you have questions or you want to share a thought or an experience, please send in a voice memo to ask.letstalkaboutit at gmail.com. And I'm really excited to keep having these conversations and uh, breaking down these stigmas. So thank you all so, so, so much. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week and I'll talk to you next time. Surgeons keep our hearts beating. They do the amazing help save lives, and so can you. Your CSL Plasma donation can help create 24 critical life-saving medicines that can give Grandpa the chance for his heart to swell when he meets his new grandson or give a bride the chance for her heart to skip a beat on her wedding day. Every plasma donation helps more than you know. Do the amazing. Help save lives. Donate today at your local CSL Plasma Center and be rewarded for your generosity.